0: This is the BBC.
1: This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK.
2: This is the BBC.
0: Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello. By the 18th century, France was sinking under its son-king, Louis XIV, who was too keen on war and exercising his power over everything and everybody. That, at least, was the view of the political philosopher Montesquieu, who set about diagnosing the problem of the decline of France and finding ways to reinvigorate the French constitution. He looked to Britain for his example, where he saw a long tradition of liberty in which the powers were held by different groups who could check each other. He set his theory out in 1748 in his major work, The Spirit of the Laws, warning against despotism and the weakness of republics, and his ideas galvanised political thinkers across Europe and America, inspiring essential parts of the US Constitution. With me to discuss Montesquieu and his ideas are Richard Burke, Professor in the History of Political Thought at Queen Mary, University of London, Rachel Hammersley, Senior Lecturer in Intellectual History at Newcastle University, and Richard Watmore, Professor of Modern History at the University of St Andrews and Director of the St Andrews Institute of Intellectual History. Richard Watmore, what was Montesquieu's
1: background? Montesquieu was born into a provincial family of nobles. He, well, members of his family, generation after generation, had served as... Soldiers fighting for the crown, as ecclesiastics, but more especially as magistrates in the Parlement of Bordeaux. So he's a Gascon. He is a a person who has a long lineage of service. But you have to remember that the Parlement of Bordeaux was one of many provincial uh, jur- juridical bodies which were responsible for registering royal law. For they were, It was an appeals court. It's responsible for local justice. But it also claimed the right to remonstrate against the crown. And that's profoundly important for Montesquieu because it's the relationship between the nobility and the crown that's so important uh, for him. He's also a polymath. He was involved in the Academy of Bordeaux, that's a group of 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 people who gather weekly to listen to papers to undertake scientific experiments he's obsessed for example with freezing the tongues of animals which may sound mad but it's actually significant for his politics as we will uh, discover he's also fascinated by foreign lands and the customs and laws that you find abroad, he tracks down natives of China who who are found in France. He's fascinated by Islamic civilization, and he he collects information about the world.
0: Now, that's great. He was also given a very thorough education, and was his family was thoroughly Roman Catholic. And he very quickly, with no influence whatsoever, in his mid twenties, became head of the Parlement, which his family contributed a great deal to. Louis the Fourteenth died in seventeen fifteen. What was Montesquieu's opinion of him? And more, no,
1: better question: What were his concerns about his rule? If you were born at Montesquieu's time, politics is perplexing in many respects. It, it doesn't make sense. If we go back to the the final decades of the of the seventeenth century, most commentators were arguing that the future was going to be French. Islamic, the Islamic civilizations have declined. they're no longer challenging Europe. Europe's on the rise. France is the dominant power, Spain has declined, so is the Holy Roman Empire. The parallel really would be with with the rise of China today, but then you have a disaster. Louis XIV undertakes a series of, of expensive wars. He seeks to reunite Christendom, so this aggressive militant Catholicism, persecuting the Huguenots, etc. And France declines. And the additional problem is the rise of what was really considered the puny state of England, obviously united with Scotland. So what was his concern about France? So France, it's to explain French decline, and it's to work out why what was called the natural order of things large powerful states should be dominant culturally sophisticated etc but they're not so you have to explain the decline and you have to try and work out what you're going to do about it
0: thank you very much richard buck he published a book called persian letters in 1721 which caused eight editions published in amsterdam to avoid censorship what was that about
3: well, um, first of all, it's worth saying that the work was published anonymously in 1721, as you say. And by this stage, Montesquieu was, of course, uh, 32. Um, it made a very large impact, as you're implying in France, um, largely because it was seen as, in effect, a coded critique of partly Louis XIV's France, but also Regency France. Um, it's an unusual work. Partly because it's a novel. I mean, it's not a dissertation, it's not a tract. Um, more specifically, it's an epistolary novel, which is to say it takes the form of a series of letters which were putatively written by Persian travellers in France. So Two bring- Persian
0: gentlemen going through France.
3: Indeed, yeah. Um, so it brings together the genres of... of um, uh, letter-based novels and travel literature and takes the form of a sort of light satire and the way it works is by um, presenting these uh, uh, Persian gentlemen, Uzbek and Rika, uh, presenting them as observing local French customs Uh, and so it um, by a sort of distancing device, that's to say foreigners looking at a culture um, presents it in a sort of critical light
0: if it was a light satire, your words, why was it so slammed?
3: Well, I'm saying light satire because it was a coded satire, so it didn't look like a sort of didn't look like a rampaging attack in bold, conspicuous prose on the established regime. It operates by indirection. So you might say that um its satire is um uh, um, savage, but protected and alleviated in a sense because it's um, it 's not a head on assault because um it uh, for instance I, I mean the best thing to is to is to, gi- is to give examples uh, so for instance um clearly uh, uh the pope is criticized I- in the work uh, by pre- pre- presenting uh him as a magician who can turn three into one, which is clearly a reference to the Trinity. Um, so it's sort of lightheartedly presented but none of this is of course deeply consequential
0: and there's also the comparison with the, the eunuchs and the nuns and priests would you tell people about that
3: well, that's essential. So, so whilst, one ha- whilst one is following this uh, narrative of um, Persian travellers in France, at the same time, one is getting reportage about what is happening, the harem uh, back in Persia. And um, that, over the course of the novel, is in the process of disintegration. Um, what's described, therefore, is particularly the relationship between uh, eunuchs and women um, in the absence of the household master, um, and it's a dramatisation, in effect, of the nakedness of directly app- applied tyranny, or, to use Montesquieu's preferred word, which we'll possibly come to later, despotism. So it's a sort of dramatisation of de- of the despotism of the East in the form of these uh, the sort of politics of the harem.
0: By that time, he settled down as, with his political job down the Palermo, building a great library. He was rich enough. To get on with that and his next book was about the decline of Rome um, which we think we own through Gibbon but no he was our first and Gibbon pinched a lot from him but anyway what was his view of the decline of Rome?
3: Yes it's worth saying that the uh, discussion of the rise to greatness and then decline of Rome was a great theme in European literature going back obviously to the Renaissance so Montesquieu is taking up in 1734 when the work is published uh, an established historiographical topos if you like Um, He departs from predecessors in very much being interested in not only the rise to greatness, but also the causes of the decline. He sees it very much as a philosophical history which means specifically that he's interested in not the sort of accidents of personality of uh you know personalities and rulers um he's more interested in the fundamental underlying structural causes of greatness and decline Uh, and the cause of decline ultimately is if wants to get to the, the core purpose of the work is um, the extent to which Roman militarism sort of spirals out of control and ends up extending the empire beyond um, manageable proportions, uh, which inevitably leads to uh, um, corruption and then the um, inability of of the uh, Roman empire to sustain itself. Thank you very much.
0: Rachel, Rachel Hammersley. Um. There was this Persian lectures uh, and then Persian letters, very sorry. And he came to Britain, which has already been mentioned, um, and spent two years here um, finding out a great deal about the Constitution, which he wrote about, and about the culture, which he wrote about. Um, How did that affect him? Why did he come here? And what did he he find that impressed him?
2: Montesquieu came to uh, Britain, as you say, uh, as part of his grand tour. So he'd set off on on the Grand Tour um, and he'd visited Vienna, uh, German States, Italy. And he eventually arrives in England in uh, the autumn of 1729. By November 1729, he's in Britain. Um, He's introduced into Britain by a series of aristocratic connections that he has. So he's at school with James Fitzjames, who is the son of the exiled King James II, and James Fitzjames introduces him to Lord Waldegrave, who sets out on the grand tour with him and Wildgrove then introduces him to Lord Chesterfield who's a Francophile aristocrat at the time and it's in Lord Chesterfield's yacht that Montesquieu sails across uh, to uh, England.
0: But what does he get out of it apart from the yacht?
2: So so uh, one of the things that uh, is quite useful about his visit to England is that he keeps some notes and things so we know a little bit of his experience right, So what does he tell
0: us in the notes?
2: So he picks up um, some Observations, uh, one of the ones I like is the idea that there are two kinds of English gentlemen. Uh, Some are knowledgeable and therefore awkward. Some are uh, not knowledgeable, um, but these people become the height of fashion. So he's observing very closely what he can see in England.
0: He's observing the manners, but really let's get to the basis of it. What he's after is the core reason why he thinks this is a working state where France isn't. And because of what?
2: because of liberty right? so France is of interest um, uh, sorry England is of interest to France in the early 18th century to French people because of this notion of it being a free state and that's based on um, the experience of the 17th century the execution of the king, regicide in the middle of the 17th century, the Glorious Revolution. England has this reputation for liberty. And so Montesquieu, just like Voltaire, is very interested in English liberty and where that liberty comes from. And what's
0: his analysis in a very good chapter which is held up still today about English constitution?
2: Indeed. So he thinks that it is all to do with the way in which the constitution is constructed and the balance of powers between those different elements of the constitution. So that you have a legislative Uh, an executive and judicial power, that the judicial power is completely separate from the legislative and the executive. And indeed, he thinks that it ought to be grounded in the people. So I think he's thinking there about juries and things like that. Though it's not necessarily an accurate vision uh, of the system as it operated. But in terms of the legislative and the executive, um, he thinks that they need to check each other. His whole idea is that power needs to check power.
0: Was this uh, perception and writing of the state of Britain, England, um, was this received as a revelation? Were, were people dubious about it? Uh, was his did his become the definitive idea of what was going on?
2: his view very much did become influential so Mm. uh the the book in the spirit of the laws book 11 really is does set the tone for an understanding of the english constitution but he's not the first person to put this idea forward um probably he got his ideas montesquieu is slightly uh careful about where he got the ideas from but probably it came from uh lord bolingbroke um who's a leading opposition figure in England at the time, who's also a great... uh, Francophile spends time in France, and probably Montesquieu already knew him in France. But when he's in England, we know that Montesquieu was reading Bolingbroke's journal, The Craftsman, where Bolingbroke is setting out his opposition ideas against Walpole's government. And he puts forward some of these notions of... Separations of powers, balancing powers in that work.
0: So, in his mission to discover what was wrong with France and how the decline could be arrested, this was a bit of this was a big piece of evidence for him. Look what's happening there. We ought to do something like that.
2: Um, it's certainly a big piece of evidence for him. It's certainly useful for him. Um, but Montesquieu isn't somebody who simply says, uh, "Well, here's a good model. Let's no. lift it and impose it in France." Uh, it's about learning from that model, learning how it works. And then maybe thinking about what you might be able to do in, in France.
0: He's against models, he's against one, one, one fits all, isn't absolutely, it absolutely. Thank you very much. Richard Whatmore, Um let's turn to the spirit of the laws. He spent 14 years working on it, we're told. He covered ancient uh, ancient Europe and what then was modern Europe. Uh, can you give us, it's um, 880 pages, I'm sure you can do this, in the, in the, with a snap of the fingers, Richard?
1: Many Way people ago. have said that that is impossible. Voltaire called it a labyrinth without a thread. It is divided into uh, 31 books. There are initially there's a discussion of the nature of law in general and nature and law arising from the nature of things. So it looks like initially a standard treatise of what you might call natural law, natural jurisprudence. But then He's fascinated by the relations of laws with moral causes and physical causes. And really what the book is, is a a series of reflections on the moral and the physical causes that influence the nature of law in different places. So we move from political constitutions to liberty, civil liberty, political liberty, to commerce, money, religion, climate. Obviously, he's fascinated by geographical factors. And then the book ends with a discussion of the origins of feudal law in France. And he's still interested in the influence of Roman law. It's really about the difference between feudal law and Roman law as the foundation of the French nobility. Within the background, he's thinking about the relationship between the nobles and the monarch in France, particularly because that 's what obsesses him,
0: you seem to have refuted voltaire 's accusation of it being a elaborate <laughs> thread you have given us a very good thread. Thank you <laughs> Would you like to go on from that richard burke let let 's begin to break that down a bit mm-hmm. it 's an immense book. It was immensely influential. We can say that without being a spoiler, really, and still is in many areas, but certainly for the next century or two. right. How did republics fill in? Because he went over many different republics, large and small. How did they fit into his thesis?
3: Okay. uh, well, I think it's important to recognise that uh, Montesquieu is very interested in forms of government and the different forms of government uh, that have um, uh, been discovered or applied in the history of the world. So he's got a world historical perspective. Amongst those forms of government, one key form of government is, of course, the republic. Um, republics come in two forms, not one. However, there are aristocratic republics and democratic republics. Now, um, as Richard Watmore already indicated, Montes is actually particularly interested in the um, fate of monarchies in modern Europe, but there are also uh, modern republics, and the, the Dutch and Swiss uh, um, would provide examples, and also um, in his the- day. Indeed, and, 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 in, and not to mention Venice. Yeah. Uh, so there are examples of other republics. And then there's a debate, incidentally, picking up on something that uh, Rachel Hamlet, Hammersley said, a debate about to what extent England is a republic or a monarchy. So there are all these complicating factors. But above all, in the relevant sections of the spirit of the laws, when Montesquieu is tackling... Um, republics head-on, he's particularly interested in ancient republics and therefore he's, I think, fundamentally in the book interested in the extent to which this ancient culture is in fact not revivable in modern Europe um, because ancient republics are driven by what Montesquieu calls a principle. So I think it's important to state that Montesquieu, whilst being interested in the forms of government, is also their, their nature, their types. He's also interested in what he calls the, the principes, the, the, the sort of driving principles, which means the sort of passion that animates them. In the case of the ancient republics, this is what he calls Virtue. But by virtue, he doesn't mean Christian virtue, and he doesn't really mean moral virtue in some straightforward sense. He really means the sort of um, sort of mores which animated um, the Romans, uh, the Spartans, the Carthaginians, the Athenians, uh, the sort of um, spirit of self-sacrifice in the interest of the republic. Uh, um, so uh, above all
0: did public service enter into it is that too too tepid a phrase
3: well it's the ability to lay yourself down for the commonweal I mean that's essentially what it is so of course public service but in a very deep and comprehensive sense basically you're not only um, a citizen but also a soldier and therefore you are you know you're you're, you're very much um, consumed by the culture of the polity
0: and that's what attracted him most to the republics.
3: Um, well, I think rather than being attracted, he thinks they're, they're there. They dominated Europe for a considerable period of history, and they, they have to be understood, uh, especially what has to be understood is how they're, they're not like the modern world, uh, and that they're not like the modern world because they're, they're driven by frugality, which is a prerequisite of virtue, whereas modern politics is driven by commerce and wealth generation. So this is a fundamental parting of the ways.
0: Yes. And uh, Rachel, Rachel Hammersley, we obviously went back to Athens and to <coughs> to sorry to to Greece and to Rome. What did you get there?
2: So he picks up very much uh, this notion of the republics, this notion of these very frugal states based on equality. And I think he does have a certain admiration for them. And he very much, in line with his approach, wants to understand how they work. Um, But he absolutely doesn't think that you can simply just lift them up and apply them to solve the problems of France at the time. He he doesn't really believe that republics are suitable in the modern world. He thinks they're a, a model of the past... And he doesn't believe, because of his arguments about fitting the laws, fitting the constitution to the nature of the state, he doesn't really think you can have republics in large states. He thinks they need to be small states. Otherwise, you're going to end up with with problems. So in terms of what he gains, he gains the understanding of how they worked, um, but in terms of what he wants to do in France and what he's proposing for the modern world, he wants to take account of some of these other things that Richard Mottwall was talking about when he gave us the overview of the spirit of the laws.
0: Does the word democracy enter into his vocabulary at all?
2: Democracy does enter into his vocabulary, so um, uh, he distinguishes, um, as Richard Book said, between aristocratic republics and democratic republics, um, whereby an aristocratic republic Part of the people have sovereign power, whereas in a democratic republic, all of the people, in theory, have sovereign uh, power. Um, But he doesn't really think that that's ever (laughs) a good form of government. That's not the kind of system of government that he wants to apply.
0: So there's nothing he thinks he can lift from that to apply to heal the condition, as it were, to staunch the wound in France?
2: No, because in order to um, deal with the situation in France, you have to understand the nature of the French constitution and the french system and you need to develop laws that fit with that system with things like its climate with things like the nature of the state the physical circumstances of the state those kinds of things and you can learn things from looking at past states but you can't just lift ideas from them and impose them in the present
0: and we turned, as you said, we, we, I think it was you, Richard Watmore. who said um, I have to, we have to keep using the full names because we have two Richards. I'm sure everybody's already clocked that, but still. Um, can we talk about despotism? Um, according to Montesquieu, where did he find it? What did he say about it? And did he think that was what was going on, had been going on in France?
1: He does. It's his obsession If there's a a theme of all of its works, it's a profound hatred of despotism. His son calls him Uzbek, the character from the Persian letters, which gives a sense of the worries of the man. When he visits Venice, he thinks the inquisitors are after him and he throws all of his papers into the lagoon. And he thinks that despotism is a state of mind it's being worried that civil authorities are going to come and take your property take your life and that worry is something that you find everywhere one of the things that fascinated him is the extent of de- despotism across across the world why are there not more free states why do you only find rare examples in the ancient world obviously england in the modern world and why is despotism so attractive and he he certainly thinks that louis the 14th was becoming a despot he always has in the back of his mind spain spain obviously with the wealth of of spanish america all of the gold and the silver what is the consequence the state uh becomes more corrupt the nobility declines or falls for luxury and despots rise, and this concern about despots rising is is an obsession throughout his life.
0: And despotism um, um, bred fear. Not you use the word worry, which is sort of nice. I'm worried about catching the train. It wasn't that. Was fear, wasn't
1: it? It certainly is. It's fear. Fear is the is the principle, as Richard Burke said. What is the principle behind a form of government? It's fear for despotism, and and fear in some ways. Even fear is too weak. It's it's a perpetual worry about your own future and it's a making yourself weak and concerned and not living an active life because you're so concerned about the potential consequences of people coming and taking your property and your liberty away.
0: And did he see the France that he lived in then to be subject to, des- to be a despotic state? I mean, it was, it was a monarchy. He was absolute in everything. He made all the decisions. Was that, would that come within his
1: idea of a despot? At times in his life, he thought France was on a knife edge. It can go in two different ways. And in some ways, the spirit of the laws is a compendium with a message for France. It's an attempt to make France into a state which will not decline into a despotism. It will be a state where you have French forms of liberty in the forms of intermediary powers that combat the monarch and prevent the monarch from turning into a despot.
0: These being these other things that he'd found in Britain. Can we we develop that, Um, Richard Burke? So the way to stop the king being a despot, or the spread of despots, were these intermediary powers. There had to be other powers there. Um, Can you develop how strongly he thought that uh, ought to be there and what what remedy he was offering France here?
3: Okay, well, this is a very interesting area of Montesquieu's thought, and one of the um, parts of his writing which becomes highly influential, um, and it's often identified with a particular doctrine called the Doctrine of the Separation of Powers... Um, now, to understand Montesquieu's interest in this it 's perhaps worth saying that he is very keen to distinguish uh as as he puts it himself um the power of the people is often confused uh, with the liberty of the people. This is a statement which he makes uh early on in book eleven, which is the chapter which deals precisely with this um, phenomenon um th- To understand um, uh, the liberty of the people as opposed to the power of the people, it's essential to understand how the powers within a state relate to one another. Now, what do we mean by the powers within the state? The different branches of government, how they interact with one another. Um, For a government to be, or a system of rule, to be moderate, um, therein must obtain this relationship of power, checking power, as we've already talked about, and as um, uh, Rachel invoked in connection with England. Now, when he's um, uh, setting out his account of the separation of powers, his example is England. So perhaps it's worth uh, retracing some of that ground ju- just a, a little bit. Um, historically of course um, states in, in the world by analysts previously have been categorised um, in terms of the, the relationship between as it were th- three constituencies if you like uh, democracy, monarchy and aristocracy uh, Montesquieu a- amongst others but but importantly him adds to this a new distinction you don't just distinguish uh, the different um, numerical constituents of rule you must also um, distinguish the um, uh, functional types of rule, uh, and that's to say the different functions of branches of government, and Rachel already mentioned these, that's to say, legislative power, executive power, and judicial power. So these uh, must uh, be as it were conceptually distinguished and then in order to understand how a healthy state might work uh, it's important to look at how they interact and how one to come back to the phrase again how one checks the other now this is sometimes called the doctrine as i say of the separation of powers it's important to recognize that for montesquieu they're not actually entirely separate thus to say in again the english case uh, for instance the house of lords has a judicial role it did then and it does now uh, um the uh, um, uh, veto role of the monarchy in the 18th century in relationship to the um, House of Commons and Lords also involved, therefore, uh, the executive power of the monarch in legislation. So it's not a clear cut distinction.
0: But that's what he's talking about. Richard, what more? We've left out religion, which nobody living in France at the time, Montesquieu, could, could ignore for more than about seven minutes. Um, we was religion with the slaughter of the Protestants. And there we are. Um, what did he think about the place of religion in the, in the new France, or the reformed France, that he was trying to promote? Can I say one thing? Else? I'm sorry, to, because it's really important. He married a Protestant. Um, which must have been so bold and extraordinary. They were outlawed, uh, the Protestants at the time. He was from a good Catholic family. He didn't seem to put a foot wrong in terms of his behaviour. But he married a Protestant. And that meant what?
1: There are Protestants in in, in his family from previous generations as well. Bordeaux renowned for having a large Huguenot contingent, which, which has been persecuted. It's... It really sends the message that Montesquieu is a Catholic, as you said, he abides by the the normal practices of the church, he does that throughout his life, but he's unhappy with Catholicism in France. He thinks that with figures such as Bossuet, who's one of his great enemies the archbishop who supported louis the 14th in the in the in the aspiration to reunite christendom and, and to undertake war on protestants he hates that he hates he hates catholicism as a form of despotism but he doesn't think it can be directly challenged he thinks that you have to be very careful because there's no point in saying catholicism is dreadful in itself he doesn't believe that he does believe in natural religion he thinks religion's what he mean, natural religion is necessary he's a deist he believes in a, in no, a, no, no, blind, no. In a blind watchmaker yeah. who has created, created the earth and that it functions marvellously but you don't have to have an idea of an intervening God or that individuals have a, a personal relationship with God that then directs their politics, they're not told by God to do particular things he thinks that's, that's mad
0: Rachel, the, um, this book was very influential let's go straight to America where they're trying to set up a new constitution uh, the founding fathers they took on Montesquieu as I understand it what did they take from him?
2: Montesquieu is very interesting uh, for the Americans. Obviously they're interested in him because he's provided a kind of guide to laws and constitutions and things like that. But what's interesting is he's picked up on both sides of the argument because one of the things he suggests is that republics should only exist in small states. So those people who are very unhappy, the anti-federalists who are very unhappy about the Constitution, um, can use him to say, actually, we can't have this great big republic in the kind of way you're suggesting because it, it doesn't fit with what Montesquieu suggested. And they quote him directly uh, in their works. But the people who are then supporting the Constitution, the federalists, particularly in the federalist papers, rather than simply ignoring Montesquieu, actually, Madison describes him as the celebrated Montesquieu, and almost turns it upside down and argues why actually a large state republic can be a good thing. And they're able to draw very directly on Montesquieu himself in order to make that argument. In particular, because one of the things that Montesquieu talked about was the problem with a republic, that if a republic is small, then it's in danger from external forces that might um, kind of over, overtake it, overthrow it. But once it becomes larger it's in danger of becoming corrupt, that the, the civic virtue that has guided it can't sustain it exactly the way Richard Burke was talking about in relation to Rome. It gets larger, it becomes corrupt and it can't operate. But Montesquieu says there's a solution to this problem. If you have a federal or a federated republic, then it can have the benefits of a large state um, being strong and powerful externally but because it still operates in terms of smaller states within, it can maintain its virtue and not become corrupt. And so uh, Madison and the Federalists pick up on this idea of a federal republic and use it to push that kind of system in America.
0: Richard, one more, and if you could join in as well. He, he he expressed that he was very interesting in the aristocracy not to be in commercial with the landed aristocracy and the commercialized aristocracy. Now, we, we haven't got all the time in the world, but it's a fascinating thing. Can you have a go at it? And then can you add to that?
1: It's really coming back to a point that we've already covered, which is that he doesn't think that English liberty or English models of politics can be applied to France. France has a powerful monarch who makes the laws. It has an aristocracy that can limit that can put the laws into practice. So you have a distinction between sovereignty and government and the monarch makes the laws, the nobility put them into practice. He's very worried about the negative effects of commerce, the capacity of commerce itself to uh, corrupt individuals, to make them obsessed with money, coming back to this idea of the public good. He has an idea of of aristocrats, of a nobility that is honourable, that behaves honourably. And it... He thinks it can only do that if it avoids the corruptions associated with commerce.
3: Although I, it's also perhaps in that context worth saying, very interestingly, of course, he is directly exposed in his own life to commercial aristocracy because... Um, Of course, in his own Bordeaux, um, looking at the window of his chateau, he sees vineyards uh, and therefore is very familiar with um, the conduct of the wine trade and so on and so forth. But at the same time, as Richard Watmore has been implying, I mean, historically, there's a strong interest in the extent to which commerce breeds luxury and luxury breeds corruption. So there's both an admiration for an expanding world of commerce and, uh, and an alarm about its potential negative consequences.
0: Can we move back to France and having been to America, for, and say it, there was a Seven Years' War, which was a sort of bomb uh, in the way of Montesquieu's easy uh, access to the future? But he bolted the work after his death, bolted that, and went and fed the French Revolution, as I understand it. How did it do that? What did it bring to the French Revolution? His work.
3: Well, that's an enormously complicated question. Um, Sorry about it. Um, but no, but no, that's go. okay. We <laughs> have to deal with these things. Um, and of course, he dies in 1755, so on the eve of the Seven Years' War, um, and uh, France then enters into a period of turmoil in the aftermath of the Seven Years' War, basically because. It loses. Um, it loses badly um, and then, of course, becomes involved in the American War of Independence, which adds to the same fundamental problem, which is that um, it is risking facing bankruptcy. And to um, resolve difficulties uh, uh, in relation to financial crisis, Louis XVI um Um, revives, if you like, the Estates General, which had been in a state of desertitude since uh, approximately 1614, revised them as a sort of advisory council to think about how the um, uh, French state finances might be resolved. Uh, But in many ways, this plan backfires because after the um, summoning of the estates general in May 1789, in in due course, uh, the estates, um, in effect, abolish themselves and reconstruct themselves as a a, a national assembly. Now, the point I'd want to make about this is, in many ways, at that very moment, Montesquieuian political philosophy becomes, you might almost say, irrelevant because Montesquieu's interest is... In intermediary powers, um, but of course that's an estates-based system or conception of uh, of a country or a state, a polity. Um, but once you're dealing with a national assembly rather than distinguished estates, you're no longer dealing with that world. So I'm not saying Montesquieu's world disappears then, but there is a sense in which it's uh, not a perfect reflection of the revolutionary program.
0: Richard Waltmore and then you, Rachel.
1: The Seven Years' War ruins Montesquieu's conception of, of the the likely future of France. It also, in some ways, ruins his idea of the likely future of Britain, Britain becoming a, a much more aggressive commercial empire. That's something that, that really changes the world. So, as Rachel has, uh, has described, people draw on Montesquieu. They use particular elements of his work, but the overall design, as Richard has said, it's gone.
2: I think that that's absolutely right, but I think one of the interesting things is who draws on him in France, because the people, in some ways, who are most interested in Montesquieu are the the people associated with the Jacobin Club, um, so Saint Just. Marat uh, and Robespierre, and in fact, Robespierre, when he talks about his uh, republic of virtue, uh the notion of a republic of virtue tends to be associated with Jean jacques Rousseau rather than with Montesquieu. but if you look at what montes what, what Robespierre actually says about it his firstly he thinks that um Uh, a republic must have virtue as its principle, which absolutely comes from Montesquieu. And secondly, he understands virtue in that very political uh, sense that Richard was talking about in terms of sacrificing your own interests to the common good. So on that particular point, they're they're drawing out Montesquieu very directly.
0: Is this massive... Yeah, sorry, Richard. Richard,
3: Well, I think um, there's one thing perhaps (coughs) that's. I mean, if one is talking about the major impact of Montesquieu in the 18th century, and it is worth... Uh, recovering the fact that it is enormous um it's uh worth bearing in mind his um his influence in britain which is you know uh, enormous hume was a correspondent of his um adam smith was deeply influenced um adam ferguson for instance another scottish enlightenment sure. political philosopher uh is fundamentally structured around the thought of montesquieu so he does have a massive afterlife largely in terms i think it's arguable uh, in terms of his vision of an approach to politics rather than necessarily his constitutional recommendations.
0: It continues as the Enlightenment continues, doesn't it? Would you like to add to that, Richard, what more?
1: I think that Montesquieu had a vision for France and he had a particular idea of saving France. And the fact is that the commercial world and the world of empire and war changes. But he was so brilliant. Especially in his description of the of the British Constitution, that that everybody can use him, and actually into the nineteenth century, you still you still go to Montesquieu. In some ways, the irony is: why read a gigantic tome like Blackstone on the on the English Constitution or or, or other works when you've just got Montesquieu's wonderful description
0: in one chapter?
1: In one chapter.
0: That's <laughs> quite a relief, isn't it, really? <laughs> 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 so he still does he have a continuing legacy then? Has he... he uh, Rachel?
2: Yeah, I, th- I think he does. I think there are two ways in which we can kind of continue to gain things from him today. One is that he's got, as we've heard, this quite complex attitude to looking at other past and present political states. So, the idea that you want to understand how they work, but that you can't simply then pick up ideas and impose them. You have to, it, it's about understanding the laws, understanding how those things operate. In some ways, it's a kind of science of politics, if mm-hmm. you like. And I think that's still very influent- influential today. He's also, I think, in many ways, interested in the politics of moderation, if you like. And I think moderation is a really important word for him. I think now, in a time where we're concerned about extremism of various kinds, the politics of moderation and the politics of toleration is something that is, is of interest and of use to us.
0: Yes, we're at this crucial stage where I've got so little time left, If i ask you a question, we'll overrun, but I'd like to ask you another question, but there's no time left, as I said at the beginning, about sentence which gets me out of a problem, I hope. Thank you very much to Richard Watmore, Rachel Hammersley and Richard Burke. Next week we'll discuss echolocation, how bats find their prey in the dark of the bat cave and dolphins track theirs in the murky oceans. Thank you very much for listening.
2: And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests.
0: <laughs> Here we go. Sorry about that, but it was... It's fine. I know, you're
2: not going to ask us about echolocation, that's fine. No,
0: no, <laughs> no, sh- I was just looking. We, got a, we actually got away with one second to spare, so all it was Clumsy did the trick. That's fine. <laughs> Thank very you all good. very
3: much. Hope you enjoyed that. Yes, yeah. thanks very yep. much. Yep. Well,
0: what did we... Did we, come, did we miss out on any big things?
3: Um, one area of impact that we didn't cover, uh, well, it's interesting to me anyway, uh, which is the conception of despotism as uh, um, this be- Montesquieu's conception of despotism attempts to apply it specifically to India uh, as the British East India Company um, expanded its um, foothold on the subcontinent. Um, the interesting thing is the extent to which they discovered Montesquieu was inapplicable. Uh, and that the image or vision of oriental despotism simply had no traction. Really? That he had depended on travel literature yeah. uh, i.e. Pa- people passing at some speed through the territory and therefore not absorbing actually how it functioned but as soon as East India Company officials found themselves based from the 1750s onwards in places like Bengal, therefore more deeply understanding um, its history and constitutional makeup, they began to see Actually, it's not a technical despotism in the way that Montesquieu had imagined, and they had to basically reconstruct from the ground up how the thing actually worked. So that seems to me an interesting chapter in the history of his reception.
0: As I understand from that, you, you have a very high opinion of the book's
1: value still, Richard more. I do, but I think, in some ways, coming to that back to this point about moderation and being worried about politics being governed by enthusiasts and projectors and montesquieu wants to prevent people from being enthusiasts and projectors he thinks that it's so easy in politics for somebody to to say everything will be all right if we step off a cliff because there's a trampoline at the bottom and it'll take us even higher to him that's that that's, <laughs> that's that's dreadful and and he wants he so this coming back to rachel's point about about moderation the tragedy for me is that the enlightenment science of the statesman or legislator that Montesquieu and Smith and Hume and, and so many others contributed to, it's, it really gets hammered by the French Revolution. Yes, we've talked about a lot of continuities, but actually the place of history in, the, in, in political science, which is something that, that obsesses Montesquieu, is something that really, it, it's much harder to do in the 19th century. Can I make a point about something else we've missed? Which is climate?
2: Yes, I was also going to.
1: Because <laughs> I wanted started, to talk about look, the sheep. When, when, <laughs> when we did this add-on, this
0: postscript, which was suggested to me by a friend of mine, Trade Union, seeing the Lord said, "What happened when when the programme finishes?" And I said, "Oh, I said, well, I asked them, what did I miss?" and what did turn out now to be? <laughs> you incompetently, you miss all yes, you miss climate. Okay, where you go? With, he says some mad things about climate If you're
1: going to have a go at it's, climate,
2: it's fantastic. Isn't
1: yeah.
2: You're to, mm. uh, no, sorry,
1: you, you started. You okay. finish. So he he thinks that um, the human body is made up of of fibres, and the the movement of the liquids within in the body are have to be uh, monitored and measured. And that in southern climes, you get... A simple way of putting it is to say that you get overstimulated. Now, the consequences are that you uh, become obsessed with luxury or sex or uh, uh, or laziness, idleness. And you lose a sense of the public good, I think is the fundamental point. Whereas in the north, he's very positive about northerners because he thinks that cold... Makes no, them northern Europeans. This is Richard. No. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's, that's exactly right. It is northern Europeans rather than uh, North Britons, and he he thinks that uh, they are more capable of, uh, of courage. He also has a lot of mad ideas about melancholy being associated with cold and the depression that accompanies dreadful climates, so he thinks they drink more and then one of the consequences of drinking more men in the north in northern Europe means that the women have greater liberty because mm. unlike the south uh, where they are much more likely to be oppressed, partly because they, they grow up too quickly in the south so you have an endless number of examples based on on climate
0: Is this, mm. is this um, excellent resume, thank you very much for that. and do people go along with that Do you go along with
2: it? I mean, the notion of climate had been Montesquieu's not the first. He's he's the person we tend to associate with it, but he's not the first to suggest that climate has an influence on that. You
0: go along with um, Richard's uh, summary. I
2: I certainly accept Richard's summary. I I I wanted to bring the sheep's tongue in because supposedly his not his his evidence for the idea of these fibres is to do, you know, I've observed a sheep's tongue, and I've made it cold, and this is what happens to the fibres, ah, and, and then don't... he kind of assumes that this then tells us what uh, human like beings... The freezing uh, that, of tongues. I, I, I mean, that seems, I'm, I'm presenting it in a frivolous way, of course, what it shows you is his very scientific approach. He's, we might be critical of it, but he's trying to draw his conclusions from you know, evidence that he's observed mm. experiments that he's performed, very much in the manner of the Enlightenment. So he, he's making mm. it an Enlightenment theory.
0: He seems mm. to think the splicing of the aristocracy and the Enlightenment would solve a lot of things is that right? Mm.
3: Yes, I think it's also interesting to think about the fact that, you know, what 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 is uh, what is the life of Montesquieu after the French Revolution? Um, and I think it's um, probably. Um, has more um, teeth, if you like, if one looks at it in um, a sort of longer time frame rather than the, the than the immediate time frame. so the self conception of the revolution is as a sort of um, egalitarian upsurge um in the context of which Montesquieu with his um aristocratic intermediary powers looks like like history. But of course in due course the reassertion of various intermediary powers is variously conceived um is a powerful one such that, you know, fundamental to um Hegel is Montesquieu, Mm -hmm. because he's still thinking in terms of a corporate organisation of society. Mm -hmm. So the world of the 18th century doesn't simply expire Mm -hmm. between 1789 and 1815, but, you know, bounces back quite powerfully Mm -hmm. over the next hundred years. And,
2: And of course, um, America is a good example of Indeed. that as well that that, that, that yes. system in, that in some ways can be seen to pick up on ideas of separation of powers of a federal republic yes. actually survives unlike the French Revolution it supposedly of ends course. in success rather than failure and and I think that's that looking at it from a different perspective if you like shows you yes. the, exactly the same point
3: yes especially if you admit that America has an aristocracy in the through the 19th century mm. and into the 21st century uh, so it looks less like you know, um, uh, uh, antiquated social organisation. I mean, Rockefeller would have made Montesquieu look impoverished. Yeah. <laughs> so
0: we're, the producer's about to enter with a you can't <laughs> refuse.
1: Tea or coffee, in case your tongues are frozen. Tea, <laughs> coffee?
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll go for the coffee now. Coffee? Yeah,
1: coffee yeah. would be lovely. Three Thank coffees, Melvin. In Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson. And there's lots more where that particular podcast came from, so why not download The News Quiz as part of the Friday Night Comedy podcast. You can find it wherever you found this.